0: Can forgetting be the reason you're sad today or terrified today or exhausted today or feel shame today or depressed or really anything, right? I think it can. I think disremembering will. I think this passage is going to lead us well today. So turn to Esther 9, We're actually finishing the book of Esther today, so if you're a guest here today, we've been traveling for the last nine weeks in one book. It's going to be the ninth book that we go all the way through as a church. It's the book of Esther, and today we find ourselves in, I think it's longest passage, but it's last passage. We're kind of putting a bow on this series, which I think has been my favorite series so far that we've gone through as a church, but I think it's going to really help us and what we're talking about. So we're going to look at verse 1. This is the word of the Lord for us. It's going to show us Christ much more clearly. Esther 9, verse 1. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gain mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great, in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces, for the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. Let's just pause for a second right there, because listen, if that's confusing to you, why the Jews, God's very own people, are destroying their enemies instead of loving and forgiving them. If that's confusing, you're going to want to listen to last week's sermon. That's not just because I want a lot of people to listen to me talk. It's because it's too much information to crank into one little moment right here. I will summarize it and just say this. The reason you're seeing that is because it's an action of holy war between God and evil. So last week we talked about what holy war is, right? And that's the latest episode in this story of God's holy war, where God tries to destroy and he cleanses evil away, except instead of using fire to do it, instead of using water to cleanse away evil like he did at Sodom and Gomorrah, or like he did in the flood, he's using his very own people as an agent of cleansing, right? So let's go ahead and go back in. Let's look at verse 6. We'll just keep moving. Verse 6, in Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men and also killed Parashandatha and Dalphon and Espatha and Paratha and Adalia and Eridatha, and Parmashta and Arasai and Erida and Vizatha, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hand on the plunder. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa the citadel was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, in Susa the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the 10 sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your wish shall be granted you? And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. Okay, a little bit of confusion over why the king has this posture right here because he sounds impressed. He sounds impressed with all of this, and a lot of commentators, they're not quite sure. There's some competing um, theories on why he sounds impressed, but I mean, think about it. I mean, if I was in the king's shoes and a report came to me that 500 men died in just that little city area that I was in, I would just do the math. There's 127 other provinces. We're talking in the tens of thousands of people that are likely killed on that day. I would have wanted to slow the roll. A little bit That's a lot of people, a little bit more than I might have thought were going to I mean, you knew people were going to die that day, because people were going after the Jews, and now the Jews, legally, are able to defend themselves. You knew people were going to die, but that's a lot of people. But that's not what we see. King thinks this is impressive, right? Some some believe that that is because he is a big believer of survival of the fittest. So while the weak are cleansed out of the empire, that equals a stronger empire. I'll let you decide on what you think that is. Not a lot's given to us on that. So let's just jump back into verse 13 then. And Esther said, "If it please the king, let the Jews who were in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict, and let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows." So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar and killed 300 men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them. But they laid no hands on their plunder." Okay. This is the greatest moment of reversal in a story full of reversals. I mean, There's been some big meta-themes of the book of Esther. One is that God is nowhere mentioned in the story. He's absolutely nowhere to be seen in the story, yet at the same time, he's everywhere in every detail. He is sovereign and he is providential over every moment, every motive of the heart, every molecule that's spinning. God is invested in this, yet he's nowhere to be seen. A second theme is that God is very good at reversing what looks irreversible. He's a God of great reverses. Consider our villain in this story, Haman, right? He leaves that first banquet. If you think back a few chapters, he's the happiest man in the world. It was like his heaven on earth. His dreams are coming true, right? I mean, second to the king, he's the most powerful man. He's the wealthiest man, and he's the happiest man. Now, if you go to the second feast, everything is reversed. He's not happy anymore. He's lost all of his position, it's He's lost all of his sons. He's lost everything. He's got a bag over his head as he is pulled away to be destroyed and perish on the gallows that he built. You have Mordecai living in total obscurity for most of the story, forgotten for great things that he had done, and then even that's been reversed because now he has a royal robe on. It, everything is celebrated. There's a big celebration. He is kind of lifted and elevated to the heights of royalty. In the beginning of the story, Susa, the Bible says, was thrown into confusion because a day of destruction had been determined. A little pin had been put in the calendar that there would be a day where all the Jews in the known world would be wiped out. Now, there's a great celebration. And even people that hated the Jews are now starting to convert into Judaism. Listen, you're gonna see great stories of reversal in the Bible, all throughout the Bible. Think of Joseph, if you know the story of Joseph. Huge story of reversal, right? He was a chosen son. Then he was thrown down into being a slave and then a prisoner and then the second, second most powerful person in the world, right? Got Jacob, got Samson, got Jonah, you've got David. Why? Because God likes to reverse things. Look at all the best stories. They're all reversals. That's because the gospel is the pinnacle of all reversal stories. And they're just kind of showing us how much God likes to do this. I mean, I think about the gospel for a minute, which is just God's good story for you, his favor for mankind through the person of Jesus, who lived with us as fully God, fully man, lived brilliantly among us, passionately generously and then he died excruciatingly, and then he he was raised again by the power of the holy spirit where he intercedes at the right hand of god for you right now at this moment and he will come back and collect his family bringing us to a banquet we really shouldn't be at and sat at a seat that will never be taken from us that is all happening right now it's the gospel story and it's a story of reversal where i am a sinner and i'm full of rebellion and full of evil and he made me friend Made me family. And we have a a story of a king becoming a servant. And a servant returning as a king. If you read Revelation 19. A story where the cross is a symbol of shame in the ancient world. But for us, it's the place where shame went to die. This is a story of reversal where we don't get what we deserve and we get what we don't deserve. Everything's reversed. Everything is on its head. Even death itself is no longer death for the people that God loves. The entire Bible and the gospel that it kind of holds high for everybody to see is a story of reversals. Look at how David says it in Psalm 30. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. All he's saying here is I was mourning, I was sad, I was grieving, and you converted it into dancing in gladness. And I know what he means because I remember that happening for me when cynicism turned into joy. When my great reversal happened in my soul. When what I feared most I now found rest in. No longer had hostility. Now there was peace. That's work that only God can do. This great reversal. Let's look back at at the text. Go to verse 17. Read a little bit more. Okay, 17. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar. And on the 14th day, they rested and made that a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who lived in the rural town hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting as a holiday and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month they had turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday." that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast purr, that is, cast lots, to crush and destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing, that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head, and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore they called these days Purim, after the term Pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter and of that which faced in this matter and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Okay, I know that was a lot. The big ticket item to pull out of that passage is that Purim was spontaneously celebrated by Mordecai. He looked around and everybody was partying and eating and giving gifts. And he thought, whoa, whoa, this is good. We should do this every year. What a great idea, we should do this every year. The people loved it. The people loved it. Esther, she's about to make it a royal decree. It's the birth of this new holiday. And the reason, the reason that they established Purim is so the people of God would not forget that they were given rest from hostility that they would not forget. They would not disremember, right? Now this celebration is different from all the others that they do. It's different from Passover and booths and all of those, because those are all festivals that God decreed, he prescribed those. This is something that they came up with. It's different from all the others, right? It's a spontaneous celebration. It's standardized celebration. It has official status. Uh, Kind of like our church birthday party. We have a birthday party every year in the fall, right? And that's because in year one, in the first year, the first anniversary, some of you were there, it it was just like, we, we only planned it with four adults, so we might have had like 30, maybe. And so we did a bunch of baptisms, we had a bunch of food, and it was kind of one of those parties of, hey, we're not dead. We made it this far. Like, we still have a website, you know? I mean, we're not, we didn't fold up shop. It was fun. It was beautiful. Year two, we grew even more. In fact, that was even more of a significant birthday because 90% of church plants never make it that far. And we did it. Baptized more people, ate more food, and then we added a chili cook-off, right? Which we still do to this day. Year after year, year three, year four, year five, God kept growing us. He kept building this deeper. He kept blessing us. And so we party over the whole thing. It's a lot of fun for us. Our birthday, it's more of a chili cook-off though, isn't it? It's more. It's more. It's a celebration, it's a memorial. Lest we forget. Because we're not high-fiving ourselves over how brilliant we were that year, right? Oh yeah, we read the right amount of books, went to the right amount of conferences, made the right amount of choices. Any high-fiving is because we're reflecting on what God has done, totally despite us. Hear me clearly when I say this. We shouldn't be here. (laughs) We should not be here as a church. This shit, we should have never even made it out of the living room. One of, the, one, of the, one of my favorite things I get to do at Acts 29, which is a network we're connected to, a church planting network, is I get to assess young couples who are about to go plant churches. I've done about 30 in the last few years. Just families that are really excited to go plant churches, one of my roles is to sit down and listen to their strategy, kind of measure um, their, all, all the core competencies necessary to plant a church, and every single one of them have a better strategy than we did, right? Every single one of them. I mean, what we did was the most ill-advised and dumb way to plant a church. Me and Kevin moved our families out here to a city we would never lived in, never grew up in, didn't know anything that you couldn't pull off a Wikipedia, right? And we started in a living room. It was dumb. God did not grow this church through us. He did it despite us. We just shouldn't be here. Now, every year in the fall, we celebrate that. We celebrate this. It's our memorial. So we don't disremember so we don't forget. But Luke, it looks like it's an obligation. They obligated themselves to celebrate. They firmly obligated themselves. It seems like it would ruin it, doesn't it? To, to be firmly obligated to celebrate something? Why are they doing that? It doesn't even make any sense. Here's the answer. Because as generation follows generation, it becomes very easy to forget the power of what God was doing in a very distinct and sweet and obvious moment, right? Right? because we're very, very good at disremembering. It's the same reason we have war memorials. I mean, if you were to just take a walk from the Capitol building all the way to the Lincoln Memorial, you'll pass no less than six or seven war memorials, right? And and they're beautiful memorials, all of them marble. Most of that marble, by the way, side note, came from here in Knoxville, Tennessee. It's a pretty crazy story. But you see these big, beautiful memorials, and on these plaques that are stapled at the front of them, you will find the phrase on several of them that say, lest we forget. Lest we forget. That's actually pulled out of the Bible. It's pulled out of Deuteronomy. That's where they got that. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us, it says, whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there? that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today. Only take care and keep your soul diligently lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. Hey, this is also why you see this odd thing, this odd part of the story of Israel that when they pass through the river into the promised land, Joshua has the heads of the clan carry a stone over and kind of stack it and make a little bit of a memorial, right? It says this in Joshua 4, that this may be a sign among you about the stack of rocks. When your children ask in time to come, what do those stones mean to you? Because you knew it was going to happen in two or three or four or five generations. Some nine-year-old's going to mosey over and look at this big, dumb stack of rocks and wonder why this big, dumb stack of rocks is sitting by the river. <laughs> what, is that? what is that about? And then some guy is going to be really late in his life. He's going to remember what it was about. Or maybe his dad told him stories because his dad was there. And what is he going to do? He's going to tell the story lest they forget. So they don't disremember that moment, right? And we get this. We totally understand this. I mean, here's proof. Today for lunch, just go to Market Square. And you'll find something firmly planted in between the guy who plays 80s music on the steel drums and then the guy that scratches on the white violin. In between, you will find a big bronze statue with three women, right? And most of you, if you live here, you can tell me what it says on that plaque. It's the woman's suffrage memorial, right? What does it do? It's celebrating women who helped campaign to rally and get a lot of momentum and steam behind ratifying the 19th Amendment to the US Constitution because Tennessee was the last state to do that, right? The hope is that we wouldn't forget all the passion and life and sacrifice that went into seeing equality and the dignity and worth of women, right? And you can actually scale it down even further to something even maybe a little less significant. Last year, during a select halftime show, we celebrated the 20 year anniversary from our last national championship, did we not? Lest we forget. <laughs> so why do we do this? Why all the trouble? From a stack of rocks and Joshua all the way to a halftime show. Because we forget. We do forget. But we also don't like to be firmly obligated to do anything. And they didn't just Firmly obligate themselves to remember and to celebrate, but they did their kids too. Did you pick that up? Is this, there's some child rearing in mind here. I know this topic's a bit of a bear trap, pastors talking on how we should raise our kids, but I do want you to consider how this nation raised its kids to not forget. I think we have a, I don't know, a romanticized view in our head about how kids were back then, tweens and teenagers. Like they were uber obedient, didn't have sin in their hearts, that they loved to hop up on Papa's lap and ask about the Bible and, you know, things like that. That's not how it was. They had sin in their heart just like we do today. Kids then are just like today. I want to put a quote up on the screen. Can you flash that quote up there? Uh-oh, that's small. I'm going to read it to you. It says, it says this. It's probably just small for me. You guys could probably read it just fine children now love luxury they have bad manners contempt for authority they show disrespect for elders and love leisure instead of exercise children are now tyrants not helpful in the household they no longer stand when elders enter the room they contradict their parents dominate conversation gobble up food at the table and tyrannize their teachers that sounds like a facebook rant doesn't it It sounds like some angry person pulled that off. It sounds like it came off a Dr. Phil show. That's 400 years before Jesus. That's Socrates right there, word for word. Isn't that amazing? Kids. Can you imagine how kids engaged in obligated celebration back then? A Jewish tween? Dad. Dad. The Feast of Booths. Okay, so why do we do this? this? doesn't even make any sense. We're going to go up on the roof and we're going to build a tent and we're going to live in it? Like, God, oh, but I was so nerdy and I, like, had plans. Why didn't we do this every year? Oh, my gosh. That's how it would have sounded. That's how they would have dealt with that. Listen, I'm not going to tell you how to raise your kids. I will say this. Your unwillingness or your willingness to obligate Firmly obligate those in your influence is going to speak to what is valuable and important to you It is the things you skip Not important the things you are firmly obligated to they're going to see that as important There's just no other way to do it Those the, the things that you sacrifice your time talent and treasure in that you are firmly obligated in The rhythms and the routines that you guard like a Doberman Your kids are gonna grow up, your spouse is gonna see, your extended family is gonna see, your neighbor is gonna see, and they're gonna say that is important to that person. That's, that's That's why Mordecai and Esther are doing this forever too, for perpetuity, that's how this is set down. That the Jewish people are to celebrate how good God has been to them, and they still do this. Listen, I'd love to brag and say we plan for this to happen, Purim is still celebrated, it's gonna be on Wednesday. In 72 hours, they're celebrating this. Judaism is, right? Why will they do this on Wednesday? Because it's valuable to them. It's valuable, they're firmly obligated to it. So how do we take this text and draw a line from it to us today on March 17th, St. Patrick's Day in 2019? After all, this isn't a synagogue. I'm not a rabbi, right? Most of you probably aren't Jewish. Maybe only some of you are. Here's the answer. We draw the line through the gospel. If you're a guest or maybe fairly new, it's good for you to know we read the Bible backwards. Okay? Start from the cross. That way the Old Testament makes sense. We start from the cross and the empty tomb so that the psalms make sense. We start from the gospel, the story of the atonement, the good news for mankind, so that this whole thing makes sense because this is how this was written for us. Right? That's how it was written for us. So that's how we're going to do it. That's how it's going to make sense for us. Because Purim, the way they established it in our text, it's the remembrance and the celebration of God turning hate and hostility into peace and rest. Because of this celebration, they're able to remember that rest found them when they were most terrified, when they were most exhausted, when they were deepest in sorrow. Purim for us is the cross. It's the cross. Which, ironically, isn't something that Judaism celebrates. They still celebrate Purim. We celebrate something better. You see, for Christians, Purim is just an echo, or it's a shadow, or it's a sign that points to the greater reality, which is the atonement, the greater reality, which is a bloody cross and a very empty tomb, where the greatest reversal in human history occurred in a story full of reversals, right? It's where rest found me when I was most terrified. It's when it found you when you were most exhausted. When we were most beat up, it's where it found us. Because Jesus, the better Esther, did not just lay down his life for a physical nation, but for a spiritual one. So this passage actually points to something beyond itself, something more comprehensive, right? We see God say this in Isaiah Peace. Peace to the far and to the near. Peace, peace to the far and to the near. And then Paul reads that, and he pulls that page out and carries it to this young church in Ephesus, and he says, and he came, meaning Jesus, and Jesus came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Listen, the gospel's not good news to me just because God is like, still destroying enemies around me, but because he is the one that ultimately destroyed the hostility between me and God. The war I declared against God, Ephesians 2, Paul says this a little bit earlier in that same letter, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Hear me. Some of you in here today, you are terrified and exhausted and confused, full of sorrow and pain and you don't have this peace and this rest, maybe you've never had it. Maybe you've just disremembered. Maybe you've just failed to remember who God is and what he has done. And so what happens is the great reversal is not celebrated or remembered, so you walk with this heaviness that comes by forgetting. That's why you might find yourself even today full of shame. That voice telling you that you are not, that you should be better, that you ought to be better, right? The voice of shame, the voice of exhaustion, of working and trying to be cleaner. You find yourself cynical, broken, confused, fearful, depressed, smothered, right? Man, there's power in remembering. There's power in revisiting. There's great power in re-celebrating what God has done for you and for me, right? Because Jesus has reversed our lot. He's reversed our lot, a lot we deserve, too, right? And it wasn't a roll of the dice that determined the fact that I was going to die. It's because of the sin that was alive in me. But then he changed things. He reverses this, and he preaches peace to those who are far and those who are near. And now we firmly obligate ourselves as a, a people, a family of disciples. But I think the trouble with this repetitive obligation, moments, and days of remembrance. We'll call them traditions, right? The problem is that alertness can go right out the window, right? And then traditions just become traditions for the sake of tradition. Rhythms, just are rhythms we do because of the rhythms that we always do. Kind of like St. Patrick's Day, right? St. Patrick's Day. A lot of rivers going to be turned green today. I get it. I get it. It's green. It's water. It's fantastic. A lot of coronas are going to be drank that are green today. People are going to try to talk like leprechauns today. None of that has anything to do with a missionary that reached an entire island. None of that does. We just lose the the mystery and the wonder that sits behind the routine that we celebrate all the time. Christmas is the same way, right? Christmas is the same way, we talk about it in Advent every year. We all know what it's like to be sitting behind a wheel, in line, you know, behind a red light so we could go to Best Buy and stand in yet another line to spend too much money on something for a person just because they're buying something for us, and in the meantime we're wondering about how we're going to get food and whether the bathroom's going to be clean enough for guests to come and blah, 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 blah. It's almost like we, we physically have to say out of our mouth, wait a minute. Jesus did come. <laughs> I mean, this is about Jesus, right? It's about Je- We have to almost physically do that. Same way with Thanksgiving, same way with Easter. We firmly obligate ourselves to celebrate days and we lose the wonder that camps out behind them. And not just holidays, but just moments too. Communion can do that. We could hollow those things out, right? Reading your Bible can be done that way. Praying can be done this way. They can all be boxes that we check. There really isn't emotion or a movement that we do as a people of God that can't be hijacked into things that we are just firmly obligated into while we just lose a sense of wonder and imagination, right? Which is why it can be so difficult to detect when our hearts wander into despair because we're doing all the right things and yet we're still exhausted and still terrified, still kind of just empty, right? I mean, hear me. You could show up to, I mean, this is just a gathering. You could show up to a Sunday gathering 30 minutes early, at two hours early, and you could volunteer your guts out, and you could sit there, and you could take notes, and you could sing louder than everyone around you, and you could write a check. Thank you for that, by the way. There's podiums out there you can just slip your check into. You could do that. And you could make a bunch of friends, and you could join three community groups, and you could walk out of here, and when someone asks you, how was your Sunday morning, you could still feel it in your hearts, and go, Wah, meh, it's all right. It's all right, the music was okay. Luke went a little long, It's kind of screamy today, you know, it's all right, I've lost the wonder, I've lost your imagination over the great reversal of what God has done for mankind. You know, by the end of our story in Esther, the last three verses, yeah, the last three verses, I'll just read it. Let's jump into chapter 10 about that. It's only three verses long. I don't even know why they did that. Whoever did that, they should have just put an extra three verses on and <laughs> called it a day. But it says, King Asherus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea and all the acts of his power and might. And the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Medea and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to the king, Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace. He spoke peace to all his people. Okay, by the end of this story, it doesn't really finish like, I would finish a story if I was to write a story like this. Because it's talking about taxes, right? And then you got this king who's the biggest troll in the whole story, and he, he figured out a way to flow through the whole thing. That's the only thing that didn't get reversed. That dude is still in his job. He's still, he's still the king. I think what we're learning when we see those things, taxes and this king, is the more things change, the more they kind of stay the same. The more things change, the more they're going to stay the same. What was vibrant here in chapter 9, it's going to fade in a few months after this. And then a few years after this, it's going to fade even more. What's celebrated here by Mordecai in great vibrancy today or on Wednesday, it's going to be people rushing around Knoxville, wearing a costume, bringing the food. It's just going to be turned into another box that is checked. Things just stay the same. New Haman's come, don't they? New villains New villains, new gallows are built, new threats, fears return, new unrest. I and mean, let's just fast forward a few hundred years. And you're going to find John sitting on an island having a vision of Jesus. He sees Jesus and he says this in Revelation 1. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he, meaning Christ, laid his right hand on me saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. That's a great reversal right there. And I have the keys of death and Hades. This reversal was spoken by Jesus when empires of the world were terrifying an infant church. Haman is still around. He just grew into Rome, right? The enemy of our souls is still using people and institutions to snuff out the people of God and the gospel that they extend. Haman is in China. Haman is in Haiti. Haman is in the USA. Haman are in colleges. Still around. The devil will always find Haman's. So how do you firmly obligate yourselves to remember and celebrate a great reversal? How do you do that? Right. I want you to consider the rhythms and the routines you have because you love Jesus. The things you wouldn't normally do, I mean, if you didn't love Jesus, if you weren't a Christian maybe, all of that can be done on autopilot. All of it. I mean, and I have to be careful here because... I'm a big fan of rhythm and routine. I love firm obligation. I'm a highly disciplined person. I enjoy it. It brings me life to be firmly obligated, but I could tell you as one that's in that camp how easy it is to lose the wonder, to forget and lose my imagination and my sense of awe and my fascination with the great reversal of God. For me, I could lose it, I can lose it think many of us in the room might be like that firmly obligated still tired still exhausted and still terrified so let this passage lead you to recapture that eye-opening amazement and wonder that you have with God's great reversal and there might be some of you in this room that hate being firmly obligated to anything <laughs> you don't want to be shackled to a routine you see no point in that But yeah, you find yourself terrified and exhausted too, don't you? Sorrowful, in pain. Let this passage lead you to remember often, lest you forget. Lest you disremember. Now next week we'll start a new series and where we're going to zoom in really close on maybe some of these rhythms and routines, boxes that we check, right? We're going to look at the Sermon on the Mount. But all I want to do is I just want to finish with one routine as we finish and it was created for this very purpose of remembering what we're so tempted to disremember. Where things can be hollowed out for us. It's going to be out of 1 Corinthians. You don't need to turn there. It'll be up on the screen. I'm going to read it to you. 1 Corinthians. We're going to go to 1 Corinthians 11. Okay. Verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given things, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Communion is one of those motions. We, it's a sacrament. It's a sacrament. It's a movement that we follow so that we do not disremember. That's what it's there for, right? It's our stack of rocks by the river that we do so that we remember, so that everyone around us sees us remembering, and it provokes that gospel dialogue as well. But consider how easy it is to autopilot that moment. Man, it's easy. Walk back there, get some bread, put it in the juice, put it in your mouth. Pray, go back to your seat, right? It's super easy to do that. It is. So the object for you today, and this is, this is my goal for you today, is not to take communion and try to love God more. But it's to take communion and reflect on how much you are loved. You can't love God unless you are able to be loved by God. Think about that. I don't want you to consider what you need to do to stir up in you to be, to be more of a lover of God, but just to relax and remind yourself of the great reversal and how it shows how much he loves you, how much he treasures you and has fought for you and enjoys you, loves you, excited to be around you. And let that lead you And when we take those elements in remembrance of what Jesus has done, it is meant, it is meant and designed to awaken your emotions, to awaken your remembrance. That's what it's designed to do. It's to make your eyes wider, to spark your imagination, to foster that fascination and that wonder in you. Not just of what he has done, but where he is leading us. Another banquet where he will dine with us again and party with us one more time. Listen, if you are a Christian here, let me ask you some questions because there is room for us to repent. Where are you firmly obligated and how is that going? Where are you firmly obligated and how is that going? Are you checking a box? Honestly. Who are you influencing? Who's watching you? Listen, not firmly choosing is choosing to forget. I want you to consider as you're taking communion today or praying or singing, I want you to consider how loved you are. Just think and meditate on how much he loves you, how excited he is to engage you. And listen, if you're in here and maybe you're a skeptic, maybe you're searching... That you would not call yourself a lover of God, although you might be moderately interested in the things of God. Let me just encourage you that God reverses what has been terrorizing you and causing such exhaustion, causing such pain and shame. And the confusion and the fear and the sadness you walked in here with, by his gospel he changes into joy and peace and rest from all hostility. I'll tell you what, go ahead and stand with me and I'm going to read a passage over you as we go into worship. And just as I talked about communion, listen, if you're a Christian and you're here with us today, we invite you to take those elements in the back. It doesn't matter if you're part of legacy or not. Listen, if you're not a Christian, we say that's something that we do as a church only because of what it represents, but we would invite you to receive Jesus instead of some bread and some juice and would love for that to happen today. Don't let this day pass by. Don't forsake this day, this moment. There's one more reversal we're going to leave with. One more. It's the last reversal. It's in Revelation 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, John says. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Lord, I thank you for this reversal. I thank you, Lord, that there's going to be a day where many of us are going to be looking at each other and we're going to have to scratch our head and try to remember what darkness looked like. I don't know if we'll even remember what pain felt like. The voice of shame in our ears, we will struggle to remember what that sounded like. God, that's how good you are. You are still reversing things. And there will be a day where you will wipe tears from our eyes. All that is dark, all that is rebellious in us will be turned into celebration. And Lord, we love you so much, and we thank you. Thank you for this book. Thank you for the story of Esther. I thank you that as we've traveled through it as a church, you've been sweet to to all of us, God. I thank you that you've shown yourself so clear that Christ is really the star and the centerpiece of this story that your gospel is so lit up and elevated and pronounced in this story. So Lord, we love and we thank you and we pray that in our hearts you would show us where we are checking boxes, where we forget, where we have disremembered what you have done for us and so we are heavy, we are terrified, we're exhausted. And Lord, I pray for those in this room who are far from you Lord, that you would seek them and that you would give them as a gift, a fascination for who you are. Lord, I pray that you would give them sight, sight of sin and sight of you. Lord, that they would see what they have done and yet at the same time see what you have done. And Lord, that this beautiful transaction would happen in their lives today. Lord, we love you and we celebrate who you are, celebrate what you've done. You're so sweet to us. You're so good to us. You're so generous, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.